That was actually a really important and, and timely announcement, actually, because uh, in our series on Nehemiah, we are at uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, and then we're going to go ahead to 8. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, one of the things that this morning is about, we talked about repentance, um, and then we talked about rebuilding, um, and this morning we're talking about revival. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter 5, one of the things you find is that the walls are completed and the and, uh, you know, the city is kind of ready to be moved back into, and the people of Israel are returning to Jerusalem. Um, but in the process of these months that they have been building and restructuring the walls and trying to restore Jerusalem and rebuild it to its uh, former place of safety, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see the need for revival because it's been great that these scattered people of Israel have come back and rebuilt the walls but they were not really behaving like God's people. And uh, uh, just briefly, we can see that in Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, it says, uh, there's a great outcry from the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And then there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax. And now our flesh is as of the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so this is what is going on. The the people are raising an outcry because of the social injustice that is going on among God's people, among the people of Israel. And Nehemiah himself, if you keep reading there, I'm not going to go into it, but he, he even convicts himself. He says, even my and my household, we have participated in this and we have to stop lending money to these people and having these mortgages and and we're impoverishing our own people and so there's this in in nehemiah chapter 5 there's just this great cry of compassion that comes out from nehemiah and this great rebuke on the people to say we are not treating each other the way we should be treating each other and so it's it's actually a timely announcement to talk about our benevolence team uh and uh, the Jericho Road Helping Hand, which is what we often call it. And uh, because we are not to be oppressing people as God's people. God's people are not supposed to be oppressors. God's people are supposed to be relieving oppression. And so there's this sort of light bulb moment that goes on here in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, where Nehemiah sees that it's great that we've all gotten together to rebuild this great city and, this, and to return the city of God to its former glory, but we're not behaving very much like God's people. And that's really what this message is about. It's about revival. That it's not enough just that we build great buildings or even put together great ministries or accomplish great things for God. It's not what we're working on out there. It's what's going on in here. And so this morning we're looking at uh, just sort of launching off of Nehemiah 5 and then jumping down to Nehemiah chapter 8 to see where revival comes from. And uh, so I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer and uh, we'll see uh, what God's word has to teach us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this just brief look at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we consider ourselves here in Halliburton at the church at Lakeside, and we consider ourselves as your people, that we would understand what you're teaching here, where revival springs from, how revival happens, how we are refreshed and restored and able to bring help to the world around us. Not because necessarily of great things we're building, but because of what you're doing inside of us and how it flows from us to the world outside. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So that really is the question, is as God's people, where does revival come from? Is revival what we're doing? Is revival what's happening out there? Or is revival what's happening in here? And then if it is about what's happening in here, where does it come from? And so the reality is, is, as we just talked about, is that here you had a people that were doing great work for God, but were not themselves necessarily great people. And Nehemiah 5 explains that, as I just did. And so the, the idea here is that the, that the revival that needs to happen needs to happen within us first. Revival flows from the returning to the life-giving Word of God. Martin Luther King Jr. said famously in his I Have a Dream speech, um, He said, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And that you you hear the the echoes of revival in Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, that he is calling for sweeping social reform. And it has the ring of revival to it, and it should, because MLK was a Baptist pastor. And, and, And Martin Luther King Jr. was intentionally using biblical language to describe the revival that he wanted to see happen in America. If you read in John 7:38, it says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the kind of imagery, the biblical imagery, that MLK was tying into. And he did that on purpose. Because he saw the need for revival in the society around him. And he was going, essentially, to scriptural imagery for that. And we can go back in the Old Testament and see where these pictures come from. Of God's refreshment and reviving through living water. Moses striking the rock in the wilderness in Numbers 20, right? Moses strikes the rock so that the people can have the water flowing out of the rock and to refresh the people who are wandering in the desert and to revive them. And all the foreshadowing that that striking of the rock carries with it for the rock that must be struck, for the living water to flow to us in Christ Jesus. The rock, the cornerstone had to be struck so the living water could pour out to us. Or you look at um, God's rebuke of his people through Jeremiah before sending them into the very exile that they're in right now. Prior to uh, Israel being in this exile that we're looking at and them returning from in Nehemiah, God's rebuke to them in Jeremiah was this. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is not saying that they don't have water to drink. He's saying there's a living water, which is him and his law and his word. And God's people have stopped following the law and they've turned back their back on God and his word. And so the, the Levites and the scribes are no longer teaching the people. And so the living water has run out for them. And then we know the same thing. Jesus, that's not just the Old Testament, but Jesus says the exact same thing in the New Testament. Right? Jesus says to the Samaritan woman coming to draw water at the well, he's sitting there. And he says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty again, but will become themselves a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And it's not just about drink, but also food, because Jesus says, you remember in his temptation in the desert, it is written, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 8 here, He humbled you and fed you with manna so that you might know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus quoted in Matthew 4. So this is where revival is rooted. You're saying, why why are you talking about this living water and food and and these things? 
And we're going to get to Nehemiah 8 in just a minute. But this is the point, is that this is where revival comes from. This is where revival is rooted. It's rooted in the sustaining promises and in the Word of God. And as we see its impact in the unfolding of the restoration and the revival of the God's people, and we go back and we look and see what's happening in Nehemiah, and we have to get back to Nehemiah here and see the connection to the spiritual revival of the God's people that follows the rebuilding of the city walls of the people of God. So when, you, when we as a church are thinking, where does revival come from? How, how do we get that sense of just the Holy Spirit moving and that we are rooted in where God would have us go and that the reform and the change in our life and in our society is taking place? Where is it going to come from? And this was the problem that Nehemiah faced. He had, he had, he had come back. He would built the walls. The people had returned. And, but the revival wasn't there. It hadn't happened yet. But Nehemiah 8 is where we realize that God has more in store for Jerusalem and for the people of Israel than just rebuilding the walls. He wants to do more than transform the city. He wants to transform them. And so Nehemiah chapter 8, I'll just read the beginning. It says, And Ezra, and I can hear like the record scratch. Ezra, what? We're in Nehemiah, right? Where did Ezra come from? Okay, so surprise, Ezra's here too. Right? When Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of each other. Right? There's two prophets who are at work here in Jerusalem working on the temple and working on the walls. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are there at the same time. And so when it comes to the revival of the people, Nehemiah turns to Ezra. And he says, I, like, I'm good at building stuff, Ezra, but you're good at preaching. Okay? So Ezra, you have to come up here and, and talk to the people. So in Nehemiah 8, after these walls have been built, it says, Ezra opens up the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bane, Sherbiah, I'll just call him Steve, uh, Jamin, <laughs> Akab, another Steve, Hodiah, <laughs> Matthew, uh, <laughs> Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, so here, here's the heart of the issue. When people need revival, when, people, when, when you have to bring revival and change and transformation to people, where does Nehemiah turn? He puts Ezra up and he opens up the book and he begins to read the book of the law because the people have been scattered. They've been far from God's law. The law had been lost for decades at this point. They didn't know God's law. This was a whole new generation that did not know the word of God. And so Nehemiah is coming to rebuild the wall. Ezra is coming to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the faith in the people of God. And so we have to understand, the first of all, the importance of the Word of God and its reading and its interpretation to revival and to the understanding that people must have of the Word to revival. And so the first thing we look at in this text is it says that Ezra opened the book, the book of the law. Ezra is going to the Pentateuch. He's going to the books of Moses. He's going to the books of history. He's going to the books of wisdom, uh, to the Psalms, to the Proverbs. He's opening up the book to the people. And he opens it up in the sight of all people, it says, above all the people. Not drawing attention to Ezra being above all the people. It's not saying Ezra was above all the people. It says it was the book. He opened the book above everybody. Drawing attention to the book that is open, that it stands in uh, every way above the people of Israel. It stands above them in judgment. It stands above them in wisdom. It stands above them in 
um, the knowledge of God. It stands above them uh, in every regard. The book of the law stands above the people. And then the, the, the scripture here says the people stood. And so that to me is, is a sign of the respect for the book. When, when Ezra stood on the platform and he opened up the book of the law with the Levites and the other people from the community there with him, everybody stood up to hear from the book. They, they, they had respect for the book and for the law of God and for the word of God. And they had attentiveness to it. They wanted to hear what it was that Ezra had to say. And then as you go on, it says that there were raised hands and there were bowed heads. The people were worshiping in the hearing of the word of God. And then there was this list of 11 other people that were there, a mix of lay people and Levites, if you go back and see the names of the people that were there. And the idea being that these other 11 people helped the people understand the law. It says, reading clearly gave the sense so that the people understood. You can picture what I've just described there, right? So the people are there. There's somebody speaking who's above them. He has the word of the Lord open and they're learning. And then there's other people that are helping them get the sense and understand what is being said. And so this is church, right? This is what's going on here is, is church is happening, okay? And, and the, then there's preaching and then there's like Bible study in small groups because as Ezra is teaching, the other 11 people that are mentioned there, I don't think the sense of the text here is that they are all shouting out at the same time over top of Ezra while he's reading, right? But those other 11 people, I don't know exactly how it's happening. They're maybe mingling among the crowd or they have their own little groups afterwards, but they are helping them understand what it is that Ezra just taught, right? Helping them get a sense of what the law means and what the word of God means and helping them understand. And so there's church, there's the preaching, there's the, there's the exposition of the word. And then there's these other people, these smaller groups who are working, who have the gift of teaching to help people understand. And it's important. We have to understand here. It's important that the word of God be regularly consumed. The farther you are from the Word of God and the longer you go without reading and understanding the Word of God and being nourished by it and applying it, the more starved your spiritual life is going to be. Right? The people of Israel at this, at this point in time had been in exile uh, for over 70 years. They had been a long way and a long time from out from under the Word of God. And their behavior towards each other is seen in chapter 5. They are a long way from behaving like the people of God should be behaving. And it's the same thing for us. The longer we go without nourishing in the Word of God, the harder it is going to be for us to be the people that God calls us to be. The longer we go without the Word of God, the harder it will be to have the strength to walk and talk rightly before others. The longer we go without nourishing at the, at the Word of God, the more withered the fruit of the Spirit will become in our lives. The more of your life God will have to prune or cut off because of its fruitlessness. You know, when I talk about all these metaphors of starvation or strength to walk or fruitfulness or pruning, all of those metaphors are appropriate because all of them come from Scripture and from Jesus himself connected to the Word of God. God repeatedly reminds us in his Word that we have to stay connected to him and through his Word or else we will wither, we will weaken, we will need pruning, we will not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit because we will no longer be nourished by his Word. So our first point here is to understand the importance of the Word of God. You could just be reminded again at the opening words of the book of the Psalms. And the Psalms might have been one of the books that Ezra was reading. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. So this is why the Apostle Paul instructs the churches when they select their elders and pastors that they must be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. And when a church selects elders and deacons, it says that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, he says in Titus 1.9. But it's not just the elders. Paul isn't just saying, look, this is really important that elders know how to handle the word of God rightly and know how to teach the word of God. It's all believers, all Christians, every follower of Jesus. He says in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. All Christians are to know the word of God and be able to handle it rightly and to understand it. This is just, this is what it is. The word of God is to have a preeminent place in our lives. And fathers, if you're here today, boy, if you can get the word of God into your family in every level that you possibly can, you are doing a good job as a spiritual father. Right, And I don't just mean sitting down and doing Bible study. Doing Bible studies and doing devotions and things like that is good. But I mean when you're sitting at the dinner table and you are talking about social issues or you're talking about what's going on at high school or you're talking about what's going on with their friends, let your counsel to your children be flavored with Scripture so that they understand that it's not just an arbitrary rule that we are uh, trying to adhere to, but there is a purpose in the, in the way we behave. Right? So the reason that we don't speak a certain way is because we honor people who are made in the image of God. And we don't want to degrade people who are made in God's image. And everyone is made in God's image and therefore worthy of respect. Those are biblical truths that you can teach to your children and say, this is why we don't get angry and yell at people or call them names or bully them or push them down because they are made in the image of God. If nothing else, whatever else they've done, they're in the image of God and we respect that. There are things like that that you can just flavor your talk with your kids with in order to get the Word of God into them. But that assumes that you have a good relationship with the Word of God. And that's what this text is about. That's what Ezra is trying to get back into the children of Israel. That's what Ezra is trying to teach the Israelites again is they have to return to God's Word that they have been far from for far too long. It's been a long time since they last picked up that dusty Bible on the shelf. Right? And we have to ask ourselves as fathers and as mothers, where are we in our relationship to the Word of God? Do we delight in it like the psalmist delights in it? Is the Word of God your food and your drink as it was to Jesus? Do you sit under the teaching of the Word of God and honor it the way the people of Israel did with Ezra? Do you seek to understand it and handle it rightly? Or is it the opposite? Has it been a long time since you were amazed and delighted by God's word? Has it been far too long since the word of God applied a correcting measure to your life? Or you just sort of remember and apply the parts of the Bible that conveniently fit your life? I mean, think about this. As the people, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, just a few minutes, but as the people sat under the word of God, it was having an effect on them. It was changing them. And we'll see the change in just a minute. But just think about this. There is not one person here among us today from the youngest to the oldest Christian that can rightly study the Word of God and say, yeah, that's me. That's how I live. I line up perfectly with this book. I opened up the Word of God this morning. You know, I I read a bunch of the Word of God and I was like, yeah, I'm pretty much doing it all. You know, my understanding of this book is I measure up. 
If, if you're reading the Word of God and it's not having any transforming effect on you, then you're not reading it right, okay? Because it either means that you in your life fit God's perfect Word and His law perfectly, not just highly unlikely, impossible, or more likely what you're doing is you are twisting the Bible to fit the shape of your life. And say, oh yeah, the Bible's saying what I hope it would say about me, which is I'm a good person and I'm okay. And if that's what you're reading, if the Bible fits your shape a little too closely, you're probably not reading it right. I know you're not reading it right. And so the reality is we have to sit under the Bible and we have to be conformed by the Bible. We have to delight in it, but it has to convict us and change us. If you read the Bible and it never tells you anything new about yourself, then you will never be transformed by it. So the Bible has to hit you at some point in a hard way. It has to carve off a rough edge. But if, it's been, if you've been a long way and a long time away from the Bible, then return to it is my plea. You know, I would encourage you to get into the Bible immediately as fast as you can and keep it up as a habit. Because if you are not returning to the Bible on a regular basis, the cisterns or the wells that you are drinking at are empty. That was the accusation that God made of his people Israel. He said their cisterns are empty and cracked. And they will not satisfy. Whatever it is that you are consuming instead of Scripture will not satisfy you. And that's why you don't feel satisfied right now today. And I know in a, in a, in a crowd this big, there are a number of you who have been a long way from the Word of God. And you are not satisfied with your life. You are not comfortable with where you're at. You are feeling that edginess. You are feeling that lack of satisfaction. And I'm telling you, the longer you stay away from the Bible, the longer you're going to feel that dissatisfaction. You're not going to feel the nourishment and the strength that comes from the Word. And so I would encourage you to get back into the Word, to humble yourself before it to sit under the good teaching of it, to get into a small group, get into a Bible study, and as you conform yourself to Scripture, it should hurt a little bit, but you will experience life-transforming change because this is what happens next. So first of all, it's the importance of the Word. There will be no transformation inside in order for anything to flow out in revival until the revival starts here in ourselves, and it starts with the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's going to do that. That's the importance of the Word. The second point, and it's just a two-point sermon, so you're in luck today, is the effect of the Word of God. Okay, we look at the importance of the Word of God and now the effect of the Word of God. In Nehemiah 8, 9 to 12, it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. That's interesting. They were mourning and weeping. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who, is not, who has nothing already. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so it started with weeping. As Ezra is up there and he reads the word of the law and the people make it understood what it is that God is saying, it begins with weeping. The people were grieved. And what does this sound like in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gets up and he's talking to the people in Jerusalem explaining what had happened with Jesus and what they had done with the Son of God. The people in Acts chapter 2, it says they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what can we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when people sat under the teaching of Peter in the New Testament, it was the same response. They were cut to the heart. They were grieved by what they heard from the Word of God. And it's the same thing here with Ezra. As he gets up and speaks the Word of God, and they hear it and understand it, for the first time, maybe in a generation, they are weeping and they are mourning. It is the effect of the Word of God on their hearts. And the weeping comes from the dawning of understanding of how the Word of God applied to them. They, they heard the promises of God, and you'll see their response in chapter 9. If you go ahead in your, in your homework this week, you'll see the response in chapter 9 of what they understood from God's word and what it meant to them. But they understood how far they had wandered from God. They understood the grace that was needed. They understood and had this spelled out for them of all the work that God had done for them since the time of Uh, Moses in Egypt and taking them out of Egypt and guiding them through the desert and providing water and providing manna and leading them into the promised land and, and defeating their enemies and all the things that God had been doing had been faithfully doing for the people of Israel and they were weeping as they understood that God had always been calling them to himself and they had ran and turned from him. And so they weeped in response because they saw that God was bringing them back again and they wept with that realization. But then Ezra says, don't weep. This is a holy day. We're back. We're back, baby, right? Like we're back in Jerusalem and we've got the word and we've got the temple and you are hearing the word of God and you are God's people. And and so you're weeping and you're crying and you're mourning and you're repenting, but this is a day of our salvation. We are back. Don't weep. This is a holy day where God has returned us. And so it turns to joy. It says, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they'd understood the words that were declared to them. And this is the transforming power of God's word. This is the revival that can take place. This is the refreshment. This is the streams of living water that begin to flow. The word of God, the word of God is spoken and the people understand it and they take it to heart and it starts with weeping and mourning but it turns to rejoicing and to revival. And it's just again like the people in Acts after Peter's sermon. They were cut to the heart, but then they repented and rejoiced and there was joy. Joy in the understanding of God and His promise to them, of what the Word has taught them. Rejoicing flowing out of the knowledge of God's Word. And if you have a passion for God's Word, if you honor God's Word, if you are nourished by God's Word on a regular basis, it will grieve you when you realize when it does its work on your heart, it will start with weeping at times on certain days. But that weeping will turn to rejoicing because of the promises of God and the grace that is in His Word and the strength and the joy that comes with it. The joy springs from the realization of what God's grace means. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of God and His redeeming of us is our strength. And that's the effect effect of the Word of God. And so when we sit here, or we see here in this book, Nehemiah, supposedly about building a wall, and is a book that's supposedly about building the city and having the people gather together, the really important part of the story isn't the building. The really important part of the story isn't the building of the walls and the building of the city and all, you know, everybody working together to see something done. We can build a church, right? We can build a nice auditorium and we can have classrooms and we can have a lobby and a library and and we can build a nice building and we can gather the people that we you know are part of our family back together again and we can have a nice club and we can invite people into that club but that doesn't really change anybody or anything 
right? Rebuilding Jerusalem didn't change the people of Israel. The people of Israel were still just as greedy and mean and, uh, you know, full of injustice as they were before the exile. Building the system isn't what's important to revival. What's important to revival is opening up the Word of God and being transformed by what God has done for us. That doesn't, having this nice club doesn't accomplish anything. We can come together and still be just as, uh, you know, broken as we were before, just as lost in our home city, just as lost sitting in church as we, as the Jews were lost in exile. But God had more in mind for them than just gathering them together as an ethnic people. God had in mind for them more than just getting them together into their city again and into his temple again. God had more in mind for them. He had transformation and revival in mind for them to transform them as a people. And so revival is, is not so much what we're doing in terms of building things. Or revival, we think of revival coming to Halliburton or re- revival in the life of this community. And we think about things going on out there. But the lesson here in Nehemiah is that revival is not so much about what's going on out there. It's not so much about what we're going to go out there and do or accomplish or build for God. Revival is about what's going on in here. It's what's going on inside these walls. It's what's going on in here. It's what's going on inside us and inside God's people. Revival is not first and foremost about what's going on out there. It's about what's going on in here. Real revival can't come from working harder or building bigger. If we want to see revival, we need to be drinking deeply at the well of living water in our own life and seeing the transformation start here. And then it will flow out from there. Right? The words of Jesus were, when you have the word of God, it will flow like streams of living water to eternal life. We have to have that stream of living water flowing out from us, and that comes from the word of God. We as a church can do our part. Like when I mean we, I mean you know, me and the elders and the different leaders we have and various Sunday school teachers, we can do our part, right? We can teach, we can provide the study opportunities, we can provide the small groups, right? Ezra can stand and read and the leaders can interpret and teach. But the response has to come from the people. The response comes when the word of God is taken up by the people and responded to. And so the challenge here that we have from Nehemiah for us as a people is will we return? Will you return to the word of God? Will you set the word of God up above your life as Ezra did? Will you stand in honor before the word of God? Will you drink from it daily and sit under its teaching and strive to understand it and apply it so that it transforms you, not you transforming it? And that's what it is to learn to handle it rightly. So that it's convicting you and bringing you to tears and then to rejoicing. God is not so much concerned with fancy churches and smooth running programs. That's not where revival comes from. We can plan and execute the most amazing programs in the world and there won't be any revival. Revival comes when the word of God is heard by God's people and the word of God understand his word. So the people of God understand his word and they submit to it. That's where revival comes from. So as a church, if we want to see change in our own lives, as you're sitting there this morning, if you want to see change happen in your life and you're saying, why am I unsatisfied? Why aren't I seeing change? Why aren't I getting the victory that I'm getting? Nehemiah's got the answer. He points to Ezra. He says, you've got to get into the Word. You, you need the Word of God to be in your life. You need to be drinking at that Word. That's where it will come from. Or if we're sitting here as a church and we're saying, why aren't we having an impact on this community? Why isn't revival springing forth within our walls? And why isn't revival flowing outwards to the rest of the community? It's because we have to get into the Word of God. 
We have to teach it faithfully. We have to read it faithfully. We have to apply it faithfully in our own lives. And when we are rooted in the Word of God and we sit under its teaching and we are amazed by it and nourished by it and strengthened by it, then the springs of living water will start to flow and revival will start to happen. And so that's what we'll do. That's what we've always done. Our byline for the Lakeside Church says, Lakeside Church, if you read underneath, it says, standing on the Word of God. That's what we're about. We're going to stand on the Word of God. We're going to understand that it's from the Word of God that revival comes. And then if you go on in your homework, I left you some homework there that I won't get into, but you're going to go on into chapter 9, and you're going to see how people, how they prayed in response to the Word of God being read in their understanding of God's blessing on them and the revival that takes place now in Jerusalem. That it's not just the people that have returned and rebuilt a city. It's now a people that are in love again with their God. And justice and salvation flows out like springs of living water from the people of Israel again. Let's pray.